The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, than an heir through God. I assume that um, I assume that most of you know John Newton, and of course the the writer of that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, many of you know that I'm sure, and some of you probably know that um, a little bit of his life that he uh, lost his mother when he was five years of age, and uh, he was sent out to work at sea at the mere age of eleven. 11, he was on a ship working the seas, and uh, through the part of his life while on the sea, he came into all kinds of great sin, being embroiled in the African slave trade, Uh, but it was when he was 23 that he came to faith in Christ. The ship was foundering at sea, taking on water, and uh, he reached out and sought the mercy of God, and he received the mercy of God. His life was changed. He once was trading in slaves, and now he was a child of God, and he never wanted to forget this. And so uh, he had on his mantelpiece in his study uh, the words of Deuteronomy 15.15, which are, You shall remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. He never wanted to forget that he was once a slave in the land of Egypt, but now he is a son of God. I think what Paul's doing here in our passage is he's trying to help us understand and not fall prey to spiritual amnesia. Forget where we have come from. You know, our our enjoyment of being a son or a daughter of God will be tied to your understanding that you were once a slave, that you once were enslaved to the loves and the passions of this world. But now God has delivered you. We never want to lose sight of where we have come from. And and so the sermon kind of parallels last week a little bit in terms of simply two points. One, I want you to grasp with me uh, the nature of our enslavement to sin, to ourselves really, to living lives that really God was irrelevant to us for much of our lives so that we can... If we grasp the darkness of our slavery, then we can begin to rejoice over the nature of the sonship that he has given to us. It's really a beautiful passage today, but it starts out on a dark note. Look with me at verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardian and managers until the day set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, 
If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you've seen that Paul's been using all these analogies and metaphors trying to understand who we were before we came to age in the gospel, before we were changed. Last week, we were captives. We were prisoners, right? We were, we were under guardians. In other words, he's showing us before you were delivered, before you were freed by the power of the gospel, you, in fact, were enslaved. Now, he uses another illustration here about an heir. An heir, even though he's entitled to the entire estate of the father, while he's young, his life is really no different than that of a slave. He's still under managers and guardians. Now, scholars aren't sure exactly what this analogy is. Is it speaking about the Roman, the Greco-Roman world where there's an heir in the house and he's young and he's going to inherit all this estate, but while he's young, he's still like a slave? Or maybe it's a reference to Israel. Israel was called the heir. They were heir to the promises. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were under bondage until that time set by the Father before they were exited out by the power of God? Well, if you want to know my answer, you can come to me after the service. But it's one of those two. But the point of it is, in verse 3, you see he just applies the nature of our enslavement to us. He says, in the same way then, while we were young, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So Paul's saying, hey, a church before you came to understand the gospel before you were free, before the age set for your father, for you to receive the inheritance, you were enslaved to the elementary principles. Now, what are these elementary principles? This is a really challenging verse to try to understand. I'm going I'm to punt to next week because in verses 8 and 9, it speaks and develops this idea of what it means, these elementary principles. It could be the law of Moses. We are enslaved to it. We couldn't keep up with it. We couldn't meet it, and so we're under its condemnation. It could be, if, if you weren't raised in any Judeo-Christian concept, it, it could be just the law, the standards that you set on your own soul. You can't live up to them. You change them as time goes on. It could be demonic spirits applying God's word to us. Instead of it revealing the glory of God, it becomes a burden to us. We'll talk about that more next week, but the point is that we're enslaved. Every one of us is enslaved to the passions of our flesh. And I know you may be thinking right now, well, I didn't feel enslaved before I was Christian. I mean, I didn't feel bound. I didn't feel imprisoned. Try not to think of it in a physical way and try not to think of it strictly in terms of I wasn't hooked on drugs, I wasn't an alcoholic, I wasn't just embroiled in pornography. Now, the nature of sin in the Bible is much more insidious than that. I mean, it's not those outward, obvious things. That's, in my mind, really the symptoms of what's going on inside. The nature of sin in the Scriptures is what your passions are over, what your desires are, what your heart's leaning into. It's the things you want that draw you away from God. That, that, that's, the, that's the birthplace of everything. It can be in a more hedonistic way that I want to be successful. I want to, be, you know, I want to find meaning and value in life by success or wealth or by pleasure. You know, our, our passions are really, really quite broad. It can be your cell phone. I, I can't live without it. You're constantly turning to it. You're touching it hundreds of times a day. You get nervous when you lose it. You want to find out what, you know, what, What's going on in the life of your friends? Comparing yourself to it. It can be always wanting something more. I just want more. I have enough, but I want more. It may be wanting something better. I, yeah, I like this, but I want the next level up. There's that, there's that sense of discontent that you're 
Your personal desires are never satisfied. That, that's the nature of sin that he's speaking, that we're enslaved to. We're enslaved to our own passions, even though they may vary and change. But it doesn't have to be just hedonism. It can be moralism. It, it can be wanting to be right with God. I'm trying really hard to do it right with God. Hey, listen, I have a good moral record, and I want to protect that. I'm going to keep working hard to be good before God so that he's going to, he's going to be almost be indebted to me. I can't believe he wouldn't take care of me. Look at my whole life here. So it's amazing how, how our passions and desires lead us away from God. They enslave us. It can be more of a hedonistic. It can be more of a moralist track. We see this perfectly laid out for us, though. Jesus taught us this in the parable of the prodigal son. You have the older brother and the younger brother. They are the same. They look differently outwardly, but they're both driven by their own personal passions. What drives you? If you're not a Christian here, what drives you? What do you need most to be happy? One author kind of phrased it this way. He says, the heart is known by its delights. Pleasure is the heart's way of telling us what we treasure. What do you treasure most in life? What do you daydream about the most? And how often do you return to it over and over? Is it the fear of man? Is it being respected? Is it being loved? Is it being valued? Because what Paul's saying is, every one of us, for those of you in Christ, before you came to age in the gospel, you were enslaved. For those who have not come to Christ, you may not feel enslaved with shackles and, and handcuffs, but we're all enslaved to our passions at one point. But notice what God does to deliver us from this enslavement. That's grasping the darkness. I hope you can look back and see. As I look back on my life, I consider the passions that held me bound, the fear of man, or lust for personal and physical pleasure, or ease. Those things dominated my thoughts. You wouldn't have seen it necessarily in my outward life, uh, but they were there driving decisions and influencing my choices. You have the same. Do you realize where you've come from? You need to grasp how desperately enslaved. It, it may have been, your life may have been very moral. But we're enslaved to our passions. But notice what God does to deliver us. See, we need to grasp the darkness of our enslavement so that we can rejoice in the light of our sonship. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 4 to 7 but I want to do it in a very Trinitarian way. I want to look at God the Father, the grace of God, that initiates help towards us when we're enslaved. Slaves don't free themselves. There has to be an outside force coming in to deliver us. So we see the grace of God in verse 4. Then we're going to see the work of Christ and how that does redeem and, and kind of buy us back out of slavery. And then we see the subjective joy of the Spirit. So we're going to see all three members of this triune God moving towards those who are enslaved to free them from slavery and to establish them in sonship. Look with me at verse 4. And notice the glory of God here. In verse 4 he says, But in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. God initiates this saving work. God moves first. God sends forth his son. Now, in the fullness of time, what does that mean? Well, in the fullness of time, some people think, well, Roman roads were built at that time when Jesus came. 
That was great. Made traveling a whole lot easier and relatively safe. Uh, the Greek language was the common language among all these nations. Made communication easier. Uh, Will Duran, a famous historian, spoke about the disillusionment at the time of the political and economic systems. Even paganism was waning. There was this increase, this moral decline that was taking place. And maybe all those factors were there. Well, they were there, and we thank God for them. But it was in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. What's that mean? That God chose the time. God, sovereign over history, brought forth the fulfillment of the promises that he had made to deliver men and women from enslavement. In that last chapter, we saw Paul covered 2,000 years of history, from Abraham to Moses to Jesus. He said these are the promises of God that God fulfilled to bring forth the seed, the son. But, but the promises were made before then. Go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis, the, the woman will have a seed, and the seed will crush the head of the serpent. And that same seed was promised to Abraham in Genesis 17 and 22. And then Paul picks up this idea. He understands through the power of the Spirit that the seed promised to Abraham is Jesus Christ, true Israel, that God, in the fullness of time, brought forth his Son. He brought him forth to deliver, that God chose. All those years, those 400 years of silence when there was no voice in Israel, Everybody's thinking God is absent. Oh, no, God's moving. God works through history, very, oftentimes in very imperceptible ways, but, but he moves in history. And that's something we need to remember. When you look at your deliverance from enslavement, think of all the years that passed by, all the incidentals of life, all the small things that you now look back on and you say, wow, they really came into play in opening my eyes to the glory of Christ. You didn't understand it then. It seemed like he was just silent. And if God's silent, he must be absent. If he's not answering our prayers, if he's not doing something right in front of our nose, he must be absent. Uh, let me just remind you that God initiated the salvation. In the fullness of time, he sent forth the Son. God did this. And it's all of his grace. God didn't say, okay, you guys have now gotten to a grade C, so I'm going to come and bring aid. We hadn't developed, we hadn't bettered, we hadn't kind of moved up the educational and moral track. Paul tells us clearly that we are children of wrath. We're enemies of the cross. We are arrogant. We're insolent. We're opposing God. We did not kind of mature up into a position where God could say, you know, like oftentimes in parenting, we don't want to give our children something too soon because we don't want to you know, develop bad behavior. We want them to, to kind of earn up to it. Not so with God in the context of salvation. He sent forth a son while we were yet sinners. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. Folks, you may be in the midst of a crisis right now, and you're reaching out to God, and you think that he's not there. Just remember his grace. He's doing a thousand things in every one little thing he does. But not only do we see the grace of God, we see the sovereign purposes in history that he's bringing them forth. You know, when we pray and we think God hasn't answered our prayer, and we begin to, again, equate silence with absence. You know, maybe you've been praying for a long time for a husband to turn in faith. Maybe you've been praying for a family member who's just struggling with some addiction. Maybe you've been praying for a struggling child. And it's hard. We pray and we pray and we pray, and we don't see anything in front of us. 
And we begin to doubt. We begin to wonder, does God really care? Why isn't God doing what we've asked him to do? We're asking him to do something godly, and yet he's not doing it, so he must not care that much. Let me just caution you. You know, all those 400 years of silence of Israel, where is the Lord in all this? And then, boom, the child comes forth. A son is sent, and he's born from a virgin. God though he be silent, is present in his creation, organizing, sovereignly leading. Right now, many of us are struggling with the political climate. We're struggling with the moral climate. Things are going down. We're wondering what, what's going to be rock bottom. How far do we have to fall? We, we, and we start feeling ourselves kind of get all feared up, you know, and what are we going to do? And people have various reactions about what we have to do to bring about a change. Let me remind you, God is moving right now. Can you begin asking yourself, what might God be doing in this time? What might he be doing in this increasing darkness? God's silence does not equate to his absence. I mean, in Daniel 2.21, he says he changes the times and the seasons. He, he raises up kings and he sets kings down. Now, you say, but we have a democratically elected government. But remember this. God is moving among us. God, we are moral agents. You know, you think about in Psalm 104, 14, it says, God causes the grass to grow. Now, we know that, that the process of natural law brings about grass, but God works in the laws he established. God works among the people that he has. So we can walk by faith in these days. God is moving in these days. It may be through darkness more than through light, but they both are the same to him. He's not limited. When certain governments come into power, you just have to seek his face and walk by faith. That's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to walk by faith in these days. Ask yourself, what's God doing? What God might be doing? What is God about right now? Because he doesn't leave his people. So we see the grace of God here first in this deliverance from enslavement. It's the grace of God that moves. He sent forth the Son. But look at the Son that he sent. Look secondly at the work of Jesus here in verse 4. But in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is huge. This is like, boy, I tell you. Just beauty right before you. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born under a woman. This doesn't deny the preexistence of God, of course. This just shows us how Jesus came forth into our world. He's born of a woman. Every one of us in this room has or has had a mother. He had a mother as well. He was born like us, in the flesh, subject to the trials and the temptations and, and, and the fight that we have with life. He was born in the context of growing and maturing in wisdom and stature, just like us. He came, born of a woman, to be like us, to be with us. You can't say. He doesn't know how I feel. He came like us. But he was also born under the law. He wasn't born above the law. You know, if you're born into some sort of aristocratic family, you're kind of above law. Or if you're born with a name above other names in terms of being a, a star in Hollywood or a sports star, you kind of are above the law a little bit. You kind of get your own way. You get to the front of the line. You're not subject to the same laws. Not him. He was born under the law. He was born under the obligations and the stipulations of the law. Just like us. 
and he was born of a woman and born under the law. For what purpose? Look, to redeem those under the law. Us, under the law, buried under its condemnation, buried under its guilt. None of us here are without breakage of the law. And he has come of a woman under the law to redeem us who are guilty under the law. To redeem, of course, we saw that in chapter 3. It's to buy back. It's the language of the marketplace. Slaves are purchased. They didn't purchase themselves. Someone else had to come in and purchase them to get them freedom. That's what he did. And you know the cost. The cost we're going to be celebrating when you look at that busted bread and you look at that cup full of wine, you know what he did. He broke his own body, shed his blood for us. That's the cost of it. But it's amazing that he didn't stop there. Do you see, he says, to redeem those under the law. Well, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty great. Great, we got our freedom now. The freedom you have now is just subjected to the next master that bought you, but not for us, not for the Christian. It's to redeem those under the law so that they might be children of God. They might receive full rights. In other words, this redemption led to adoption. We have a new name. We have a new identity. We have a new status. We're now heirs. We're now children of God. We're not simply free. We're free to be children of God. Listen to what Anselm, he was an 11th century Catholic monk theologian. He says, For when death had entered into the human race through man's disobedience, it was fitting that life should be restored through the obedience of man. When the sin, which was the cause of our condemnation, had its beginning from a woman, it was fitting for the author of our justice and salvation to be born of a woman. Since the devil, when he tempted man, conquered him by the tasting of a tree, it was fitting for him to be conquered by man's bearing of suffering on a tree. This is what Christ has done for us. Incredible. Not just delivered, not just forgiven but now established as sons and daughters of God so that we might receive adoption, that you have a name, those with faith in Christ. You have an, a new name. So you see the grace of God the Father moving towards us, drawing us out of enslavement. You see it's rooted in the work of Christ who lays down his life that we might become friends, children of God. But notice next, the presence of the Spirit. You see the triune nature. This is why we walk out faith in the Trinity. You see the presence of the Spirit in verses 6 and 7. The objective reality of Christ taking on flesh and dying for our sins and establishing us as sons, now the Spirit makes that a subjective experience that our hearts can be filled with the Spirit, knowing that we're children of God. Look with me at 6 and 7. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our heart. Now, let me read that again. And because you are sons, Christ has established that, permanent, fixed, firm. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, that's the spirit of Christ, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is, this is really incredible here that, that God would send the spirit of his son. So the spirit of Christ, uh, the spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to mediate Christ to us 
through the Spirit, in our spirit, confirming to us that we're children of God. The Spirit of God is the one that makes that that gives us that subjective experience that we know that we're children of God. That God sends the Spirit into our hearts so that we can call out to God as Abba Father. And it's interesting that he uses Abba Father because Abba was a, a, an Aramaic term. These Galatians wouldn't have known any Aramaic word. But Paul is giving us a word to approach God. Why? Because this is exactly the term that Jesus used in Mark chapter 14, 36, when he called out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, may this cup pass from me. In other words, you, you see the word Abba, and preachers love to make hay with this thing. You can call him Daddy, Daddy, and all that. Let me just erase that from your mind. It's not a term of infancy. It's a term of intimacy. It's dearest Father, this this. This closeness that he gives to our hearts, that we can call him Father. That we can come in a very intimate, son-daughtership way to him. And he's going he's to give us all that we need. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as Josh prayed, he will be with us. His rod and his staff will comfort and strengthen us. This is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God helps us to pray and to see him as God. Even in the midst of your affliction, you can still see him as a loving father. That's not because you've grown so far in the faith. That's the Spirit of God upholding and strengthening you. Why people persevere through trial after trial, it's the Spirit of God sanctifying and persevering. Let's say you're still, you feel like you're still struggling along in life, but you're struggling along. It's the Spirit of God helping, encouraging you. This is why we cry out to be filled with the Spirit. Right before I got up, I prayed, God, fill me with your Spirit. Unless the Lord builds a house, it's labors, labor in vain. God, give us your Spirit. This is how I prayed for you this morning and yesterday morning from the Valley of Vision. The author says, and this is what I prayed for you, but this is the words of the author. Fill me with your Spirit that I may be occupied with your presence. Give me faith to behold my name engraven on your hand. Engraven on your hand. Give me faith to behold my soul and body redeemed by your blood, my sinfulness covered by the life of pure obedience. May your comfort cheer me in my sorrow. May your strength sustain me in my trials. May your blessings revive me in my weariness. May your presence render me a fruitful tree of holiness. May your might establish me in peace and joy. May your incitements make me ceaseless in prayer. May your animation kindle me in undying devotion. Send to me the Spirit, the searcher of my heart, to show me of my corruptions and helplessness, that I may flee to you, that I may cling to you, rest upon you as the beginning and end of my salvation. That's what the Spirit does, moving in us. So God comes forth to deliver us through the work of the Son, and then he gives us the presence of the Spirit to carry us through the end. This is the gospel. It's incredible. The Spirit bringing about change. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way, about the role of the Spirit. And he takes this uh, illustration from Thomas Goodwin, who died hundreds of, years, uh, hundreds of years before him. But he says, it's like a father and a child, and they're walking along the road. 
They're holding hands and they're enjoying a walk. The child knows the man is his father and the father knows the child is his son and the child knows the father loves him. But then all of a sudden, at some impulse of the father, he, he bends down and grabs the child and pulls him close to him and kisses him and, and just tells him that he loves him, embraces him, cradles him, carries him, and then puts the child back down and they continue walking down the road. The relationship had never changed. It never deepened. It was just that expression of the Father's love. That's what the Spirit applies to us. You, you notice, he brings the whole thing, he wraps it all up in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, So then you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, do you know what it means to be a son or daughter of God? Do you know what it means to be an heir? It, it means you now have full rights. You have a new status. You have a new identity. We celebrate this. You're no longer identified by body type or by color or by workplace or by education or by place in society. We saw that last week. Those are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Now you're a son. You're a daughter. It's all the same for us. Sons and daughters. That's what we are. Do you live in light of this? Can I encourage those of you who are still striving to, with faith, add the things that you feel you must do for him to love you, can you repent of that with me? I'm an older brother type. I slip into that. Let's repent and let's just ask God, give me the joy of what it means to be a son. Every parent in this room, if you had a child that kept doubting your love for them, you would bend over backwards to assure, no, I love you, no, I love you. You're a son, you're a daughter. We want to live in light of that, and that means freedom. But not only that, we have a new hope. We have a hope for a future. You know, our culture is hopeless right now. Increasing despair, you see it in the polarization of our society. You see it in the anger and the bitterness. You see hopelessness, and yet we are heirs. Hey, listen, slaves don't get inheritances, that's for sure, but you are an heir of God. You're heir to the promises of God. And some of those promises we found out were, of course, the cosmos, the redeemed cosmos. Now, just take that in for a minute with me. You guys have your nice quarter acre, your half acre, whatever you have, and you love it. We will inherit the redeemed cosmos. That's all of it right? As far as the eye can see, and then a billion times further than that. He says that we're going to inherit the cosmos. We're going to be the children of God in the universe that God has created. You will inherit that. But you're going to see Christ. You're going to enjoy the one who died for you. You're going to see the Father who created all things with a word. You're going to have, there's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain. The whole order of things will be put away. There's no more sea, he says in Revelation. That means there's no more evil, restored, beautiful relationships, even with those people that you can't just kind of get along with right now. At one point, there's going to be an intimacy between all believers that will be sweeter than any intimacy you can have on this life. All that is ours. He's giving that to us. He's telling us so that whatever trial we go through, we're looking at that to endure the fuel, but, but also whatever blessings we have now, we hold them open-handedly because what we have coming won't be destroyed by rust or moth. It won't deteriorate. This is the, 
So how ought this cause you to live? So in the midst of the trials that you may be walking through, are the present sufferings to be compared to the eternal glory that will be ours? It's the fuel, friends. It's the fuel to get through the difficulties of this life. You know, John Piper, I think, used this example years ago regarding, um, I think it was an old illustration by J.C. Ryle, 100 years before. He talked about a family, a man, let's just say a man is going set to uh, you know, receive an inheritance of a distant uncle, and it's worth millions, it's beautiful, it's lands and homes and everything. And so he's taking his care, he gets news that the uncle has uh, died and the inheritance will be his, and he's now traveling to take his inheritance. Can you imagine the joy that trip would be? But about a mile away, the wagon that you're traveling in, the wheel breaks and falls off. And you've got to walk the rest of the way. And it's rough terrain, no doubt. It's a hard walk. But you're going to your inheritance. Who would be complaining? Ah, I can't believe I've got to walk a mile. I can't believe I've got to go through. Who would do that? No, we'd run. We'd find energy. That's the idea that he's trying to paint here that that one-mile journey would be nothing in comparison to what you're receiving. That's what he's trying to engender with it, that we'd be a people of hope, a solid hope, even in the face of death, because we know that Jesus Christ put death to death in his death. So we can have hope. And, And then third, there's a new freedom that we have. There's a new freedom. Listen, when I say freedom to you, as good, red blooded Americans, we think personal autonomy. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. It's not what he's talking about here. This kind of freedom, this kind of freedom is a freedom to love God unhindered by the burden of sin. This is a freedom that I can now live for God and give my life for God. It's kind of like what Augustine said. Love God, do what you want. Love God, do whatever you want. But love God. And then whatever flows from that will be in accordance with that love you have for God. So, so for those of us here, even if you have not come, you've been here a long time, and you, this is the way of becoming a Christian. You have it laid out, right? God the Father has moved with grace. He has brought forth a Son who has died for our sins, established us as children of God, and the Spirit now applies to us so that we can say, Abba, Father, ask God for that. That is what draws us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us to being in the kingdom as a son or daughter. It's a simple crying out to God. God, save me by your grace through your son and give me the presence of your spirit. But for those of us who are in the faith, you have come to faith, but you don't feel it. You don't sense the spirit of God. You wonder where he is. You do struggle with silence being absent. Would you do me the favor of just just simply this? You go home today, and you you look at 4 and 5 of chapter 4, and you meditate on it. You think, you fix your eyes on it, and and you call out to God to ask for faith to believe that he was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem me as I am guilty in the law, and to give me full rights of sons. And then I want you to ask to be filled with the Spirit of God that you would be able to, by the Spirit of Christ himself, cry out to him and say, Abba, Father. And that you might grab a brother or sister and say, I don't feel it. I'm not experiencing it. I'm struggling with it. Would you please pray with me? Join with me in this walk. Uh, This is a dark part of my pilgrimage, and I'm having trouble getting through. That's what the church is for. That's why we gather every week. That's why we covenant with each other to finish well, because we're going to need each other to finish well.
and ask for that today. And, and you know to the degree that you rush to do this will be an indicator as to how much you really trust or how desperate you really feel. You know, we're about to take the bread and the cup. So there's one other fruit that we get. You know, we, when we are touched by the grace of God, given the grace to believe in the work of Christ, enjoy the presence of the Spirit, and then we also become part of the family of God. And, and that's where I just want to turn your mind to just briefly. You know, if we are sons and daughters of God, then of course, naturally, we become brothers and sisters of each other. We have this common status as brothers and sisters. And by the way, we have the common status because we share the same spirit. We all share the, I don't have more of the spirit than you do. We share in the same spirit. And uh, we cry out to the same father. And we call him the same name. We call him Abba Father. Now last week we learned that there are all kinds of differences, right? There's Jew and Greek and there's slave and there's free and there's male and there's female. And those differences remain, but they're irrelevant in the kingdom of God. But our unity is displayed as we take from the same bread and the same cup. That's a visual way of showing that all the differences that we have in here of color and creed and background and education, all those differences are obvious. But when we come to the same bread and we drink from the same cup, then we show, no, this is what our unity is. Our unity is in Christ, right? We display it. We come to the same Lord, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us under the law. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He says, according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, same language that we just read, he is going to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and earth. So Christ, that's why when we say Christ is the center of our church, that's God's plan. He's going to unite everything in Christ. That's why we're the body of Christ. Together, hand, foot, ears, nose, eyes, we're all one in Christ. That is what's being displayed month after month. That's God's, and think about God's plans already achieving. It isn't fully consummated, but right now we are evidencing the answer to God's plan. We're showing that it's in fact happening as we come together and eat from this cup. So let's take a moment now and just consider how God's plan is to unite all things. This is why we strive at unity. This is why Josh prayed for it. That, listen to what he says, Paul. In, so I read to you from Ephesians 1. Let me read to you from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul is writing from prison right now. Now, this is incredible. Paul suffering for the sake of the gospel, even though he was used to do dramatic miracles, he is sitting rejoicing in jail for the sake of the name. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. That's what we are as a family of God. We're displaying our unity. So let's take a moment and just confess the things that we may or may not have done in terms of maybe you haven't done anything to bring disunity, but you haven't done anything to bring unity. That we would ask God for greater grace and greater strength to walk out these, these words. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.